The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Archaeology is often viewed as a fascinating, eclectic, and ultimately quaint pursuit. This program explores archaeology from the perspective of professionals who demonstrate that in the 21st century, archaeology and its sub-disciplines may hold the key, not only to our past, but to our present and future. Welcome to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, with your host, Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein. This is Joe Schuldenrein with another episode of Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. One of the uh, issues that we have discussed over the course of the program are certain regional developments in uh, the archaeology all over the world. And uh, we have, of course, spent a fair amount of time and effort concentrating on North America. And uh, I can speak from my own personal experience. My introduction to this profession was, especially in the New World, was in the southeastern United States. And one of my uh, closest and most beneficial experiences was working with with my great colleague, David Anderson. David Anderson is a professor of, uh, of of anthropology at the University of Tennessee and has extensive experiences in all aspects of archaeology, including cultural resource management, uh, public service. He has worked for the National Park Service. Uh, David has a PhD in anthropology from the University of Michigan and uh, is widely recognized as one of the foremost scholars in southeastern archaeology. I'd just like to say, as somebody who has worked extensively in many parts of the world, the advances both technically and methodologically and and uh, thematically across North America. Many of them have been pioneered in the southeastern United States, and David has been at the forefront of many of the more recent developments in that uh, sector. So it is my pleasure to introduce my colleague, Dr. David Anderson. Dave, welcome to the program. I'm very glad to be here, Joe. Dave, what I'd like to start with is, since you have been so involved in southeastern archaeology, basically since, uh, I won't say since its inception, obviously, but since the, since the major thrust of the cultural resource management era, if we put it, say, in the 1970s, you've witnessed many of the most significant trends in archaeology in the southeast and uh, sort of as a mirror of what's happening continent-wide. Why don't you give us sort of a little synopsis of how you see the profession having developed since those early days of NHPA? Well, um, 
The one thing, Southeastern Archaeology has grown tremendously. When the organization, uh, the Southeastern Archaeological Conference, formed in 1938, there were only about 40 or 50 folks uh, that were a part of it. And at our most recent meetings, we we tend to have between 800, um, 900 people attend the meetings, and over a thousand are members of the conference. So uh, the the numbers have grown tremendously. And as you pointed out, since the National Historic Preservation Act was passed uh, in the mid 1960s, uh, the opportunities for um, archaeology, historic preservation, heritage management have grown tremendously. I was fortunate enough to start my career in archaeology in the late 60s and to be employed uh, starting in the early 70s. Uh, so I've done cultural resource management throughout my career. What um, increased opportunity for fieldwork has done, we, we've just learned a tremendous amount because we've been able to survey vast areas of the landscape, find literally um, hundreds of thousands of archaeological sites, conduct excavations at thousands of those, and in some cases, very extensive excavations uh, at hundreds of those sites. So uh, we've just learned a tremendous amount about the prehistory and, and history of our region as a result. What would you say was the input? What were some of the earlier findings? I mean, a lot of the uh, work that we did, you and I, and, and certainly you've succeeded and taken this much further, was developed from the River Basin surveys, and you and I had begun, certainly, when uh, some of those huge dam projects developed in the late 70s and early 80s. Why don't you talk a little bit about the developmental history and how people like Jimmy Griffin and Richard Ford and folks like that uh, contributed to the early development of southeastern archaeology? Well, southeastern archaeology um, until the 1930s was largely conducted by people outside the region. And beginning with the Great Depression um, and New Deal era um, federal programs that brought about archaeology in southern states because it was warm a lot of the year, <clears throat> you, could, you could put large numbers of people to work doing archaeology. A lot of archaeology occurred in the 1930s. Uh, it ended with World War II. But many of the people who started out in American archaeology, including going on to many other areas, worked in the southeast. Now, after um, with the onset of World War II, archaeology uh, uh, dropped off uh, quite a bit. And it wasn't until the later uh, 1960s with a new round of, of federal environmental and historic preservation legislation that it, that it really took off again. Um, and But many of those Depression-era archaeologists worked in the Southeast. Dr. Griffin, James B. Griffin, was a professor at the University of Michigan. He visited many digs, worked with artifacts, uh, and trained many of the archaeologists of uh, later generations through the University of Michigan uh, and others. And it wasn't until the 1960s and 70s that graduate programs in anthropology and archaeology in particular emerged in many of the southern states. Um, and there have been opportunities for work for their students as a result of, of um, the tremendous support for archaeology on the national level. And, and um, what I would note is, is that the National Historic Preservation Act, it's been in place for 50 years. Um, it's widely supported by um, uh, all parties. Um, it, it states right at the onset that um, 
the purpose for it is uh, basically that the spirit of our nation, that um, that our nation is founded upon, is reflected in its historic heritage, uh, which should be preserved as a living part of our life in order to give a sense of orientation to the American people. That's right in the preamble to the legislation. And it's important, uh, and it's been regarded as important for a long time, which is why so much work has been done. Uh, and again, we're... Whereas uh, in the 1960s, you might have one archaeologist in a given state or one historic preservation person. Now you have typically 10, 20 such people. And as a result, uh, that translates into a lot of work being done. What do you see as the major developments if we were going to sort of start and and uh, count 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 through the, the years and and proceed through the years since the 1970s. Where have we moved? I remember when you and I started to work, we were concentrating on a lot of later prehistoric sites, and then it seems to me that the focus has eventually shifted to early migrations. How do you see that trend developing in the southeast, and what do you see as the basis for those trends? Well. Um, traditionally, archaeologists um, in the region and indeed around the world have tended to look at the big elaborate sites, um, monumental complexes, and the one thing with the National Historic Preservation Act and, and uh, cultural uh, or heritage management is we look at everything. We look at um, the large, the small sites. Um, we look all across the landscape, and as a result, we're looking at, at, at sites of a lot of different time periods that we might not have focused on before. Uh, and it's turning out that there are some very interesting things we're discovering as a result um, of doing that. So in terms of the work that you and I did in the Richard B. Russell Reservoir on the upper Savannah River, Georgia, and South Carolina back in the early 1980s, yes, we were focusing on big village sites. Other people were working on mound excavations or large plantations. Uh, since then, um, a whole range of sites of, of all different time periods have been examined, everything from yeoman farmers to uh, antebellum um, uh, enslaved people's quarters as parts of plantations um, to basically how people were using the landscape uh, at all different periods of time, uh, increasing in uh, interest in how changes in climate and biota, um, forest cover, for example, uh, changed over time and how that affected human settlement. Now, in terms of uh, the, the very first peoples, we're really lucky in North America in that there's a diagnostic artifact called a, a fluted projectile point. Uh, it's a projectile point that basically has a thinning flake uh, going up from the base. It looks like a flute in a classical Greek uh, or Roman column. So that's why it's called a fluted point. You find one of those, and you've got an object that's about thirteen to twelve thousand years old. People have been fascinated by them for a long time since, at the Folsom locality in 1926, it was recognized that these date to the last ice age. They were found with an extinct form of bison then, and now we know they occur all across North America. Um, so people have been fascinated with them, and a lot of them occur in the southeast, to these artifacts. Um, People have been recording them, uh, collectors, avocational archaeologists collect them, professionals um, find them occasionally, uh, and there's interest in recording them. And one of the things that I've been involved with for about 25 years now is just compiling 
that information into one central repository. Where have these points been found? What do they look like? What, what are their measurements, characteristics? And so one of the things I've been doing is developing a website, uh, the PIDBA, P-I-D-B-A. You can Google it. You can you know, use a search engine and find it. And you can see um, information on about 30,000 early artifacts. Well, when you plot these on a map, and nobody had done this you know, before other than intuitively, you can see that huge numbers of these early forms occur in the east and particularly in the mid-south uh, along the Tennessee and Cumberland Rivers. Uh, northern Alabama to the Ohio River um, is one of the richest areas uh, for these early forms. And it, it's a, it was a good place to live. Um, it's a good place to live now. It was obviously a good place to live then. So a lot of early people settled there. So a lot of work that's been done in recent years is where are these early folks living on the landscape and why? And it's typically where there were rich game uh, resources, where there was high-quality uh, tool stones, tools that they could make, you know, or material they could make into stone tools. And then typically um, at intersections of major physiographic regions, like, um, say, between the coastal plain and the Piedmont, basically we're learning where people lived on the landscape for that early time. Now, this is happening all across the country and, and across the continent, of course, but I would say that if you'd asked anyone 25 years ago where are most of the fluted points, most people would probably have said the Great Plains because that's where a lot of the early sites were. Now we know differently, and that's, that's kind of an exciting aspect to archaeology because we're learning new and exciting things all the time, um, particularly in the southeast. The amount of work has we've just made one major discovery after another over the last uh, 25, 30 years. David, I'd like to capitalize a little bit and expand on that topic because uh, the focus on Clovis and the sudden, ostensibly sudden appearance of Clovis as being the very first uh, North American industry has been a question that's been wrestled with uh, certainly extensively over the past 20 years. You've compiled that database. You uh, are continuing to put in and fill in major blanks. How are you looking at it? How, how did you get really interested in the early arrivals hypotheses? And where do you see that type of research going? Well, I personally got interested in it because um, they're really um, – exquisite artifacts, and they're also the earliest widespread evidence for human settlement in the Americas. Um, a major story in American archaeology is these things were found with Ice Age animals, and they offered conclusive proof for early settlement. Uh, as you pointed out, there's been a real debate about uh, when people got to the Americas, and we honestly don't know now, although the genetic evidence, the archaeological evidence we have, suggests sometime perhaps 17 to 15,000 years ago uh, people came into the Americas. I think there's going to be tremendous interest in um, that question. There continues to be, um, and it isn't just with archaeology. Uh, geologists are helping us understand when ice sheets covered, the, covered um, say, um, Canada and the northern United States. Uh, a traditional model had people coming through an opening um, between the ice sheets, the so-called ice-free corridor hypothesis, um, people coming through about 14,000, 13,000 years ago. Um, that is still possible, but now it's looking increasingly likely people came down the Pacific coast. 
um, and settled the Americas that way because the uh, ice, the uh, the corridor wasn't open uh, earlier than that. Whereas we have people in in central Alaska at sites around fourteen to fifteen thousand years ago, and there are a few sites south of the ice sheet that have been excavated. Monteverde in uh, Chile, for example, uh, is about fourteen thousand five hundred years ago. Um, a site in Florida, the Page Ladson site, uh, where extensive work has taken place, is around uh, fifteen thousand or so years old. There's a site in Texas, Deborah Freed. Can, there are other sites uh, in different parts of the country that appear to indicate a, a, a very small, thin on the landscape, early population for two, three thousand years before you know at, before the explosion at thirteen thousand. I mean, it's there's virtually no visibility for early peoples uh, prior to thirteen thousand, and then within what appears to be just a few centuries, they're everywhere, which which um, is, is fascinating in and of itself. So people are going to be trying to figure out, well, where were these folks? One suggestion is, is um, sea levels were hundreds of feet lower during the Ice Age. They may have been living closer to the coast on the continental shelf, which was huge, particularly in uh, the east. Florida was twice its size when sea levels were three, 400 feet lower. So um, some archaeology has been directed to the continental shelf. Um, with Insights have been found. Um, offshore, as much as 20, 30 kilometers offshore, um, although in fairly shallow water, 30 to 50 feet. But we're just getting started with that kind of archaeology. Uh, on the northwest coast, an artifact was found in about 160 feet of water. So that will be a focus for um, investigation in the future as well. And one of the things, one of the types of research that I do um, with a number of colleagues um, is I look at the rates at which sea levels were changing during the late Pleistocene, early Holocene, and how rapidly were shorelines moving in or out. And um, it appears that um, right after Clovis times, uh, the shores, shorelines were moving very rapidly, so people may well have moved into the interior. Um, if the if it's if the sea coast is a is a difficult place to live in because shorelines are moving rapidly, and we're talking in some cases of um, seas are moving in or out hundreds of uh, meters. Um, a decade. So where you went to the beach 10 years ago is far away from where you go to it now because these are very flat, gentle continental shelves. So um, the stability of the shoreline is affecting settlement, and, and that's that's important because minor, minor changes in sea level appear to have had fairly profound effects on human settlement, not just in the late Pleistocene, the Paleo-Indian period, but um, during all subsequent periods as well. So what we do studying these early peoples also has ramifications for uh, subsequent periods as well as our, our modern world. And we will get back with our very intriguing discussion on early migrations and settlements with a focus on the southeast with my special guest David Anderson right after these words. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. Are you finding your frequency? 
It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Live Fridays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips is an insider's glimpse at a life from a psychological perspective. It's a look at what matters to us. Why do we laugh? How do we cope with stress? Are men and women really that different? What is it about our relationships? How are they formed? How they work out? And why they sometimes don't? Every week is something new to engage you. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll turn up your perspective on life. You count. Tune into Inner Revolutionary Radio and join the spontaneous wave of people all over the planet who, like you, are changing our world from the inside out. Follow the movement. Meet guests who are shaking things up. Call in and gain insights and courage to empower your own voice. Large or small, your part counts. So join us. Co-hosted by Beth Green and James Maynard, Inner Revolutionary Radio airs live every Thursday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to Indiana Jones Myth Reality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. Joe Schuldenrein, I'm back with my special guest and one of my favorite colleagues, Dr. David Anderson, who is a anthropology at the University of Tennessee in Knoxville. Um, David was discussing the ramifications of doing interdisciplinary work in archaeology, and we've talked about that topic on a number of other programs, the need to integrate the natural sciences with archaeology and anthropology and other disciplines associated with the human condition. David, you were talking about your early, your recent work on early migrations in the southeast, and you were mentioning, obviously, the significant elements associated with sea level rise, the uh, the drowning of ancient landscapes, the work that's now going on on this continental shelves, on the, the submerged continental shelf. Why don't you tell us a little bit about how interdisciplinary work uh, has been encouraged in archaeology, beginning with its uh, implementation for early sites and then moving into later sites? Okay, well, when we go out to archaeological sites now, one of the first things we do is is we use um, remote sensing techniques, um, either on the ground uh, techniques like um, uh, resistivity or ground penetrating radar or 
um, more remote um, uh, LIDAR-type techniques where we basically uh, look at subtle topographic variations uh, and then literally look below the ground surface to see what's there. Prior to about 30 years ago, we had to go out and dig and open up huge areas. Uh, the site you and I worked on, Rucker's Bottom, uh, back in the early 80s, we had to dig and expose, as we did, acres of uh, landscape. Now we'd go out with remote sensing and say, oh, there's palisaded villages and structures there. Mm-hmm. With regard to the first peoples, one of the disciplines that's proven tremendously helpful is uh, genetics. Um, there have been investigations of the Kennewick uh, person and then the Anzic child. Um, these are early uh, human remains that were found uh, and Anzic, for example, is a Clovis-era uh, human burial. It's a child. And uh, genetic signature shows that um, it is identical to contemporary Native peoples in the Americas and indeed um, was, an ans- was unquestionably uh, ancestral to uh, Native peoples that are in the Americas. And Kennewick shows the same thing. And in fact, Kennewick showed that many of the peoples that are still living in that area along the uh, Columbia River uh, in Washington State um, are, still, are still there, that this person is related to people that were there, that are there now eight or 9,000 years later. So genetics and um, uh, biological anthropology has been tremendously useful. Uh, when we when we work with archaeological sites, of course, we try to identify subsistence items. We work with um, zooarchaeologists, uh, paleobotanists. We're interested in a range of dating techniques from uh, everything from carbon dating uh, to uh, other forms of, of dating on more recent sites. Uh, dendrochronology, for example, is a, another form. That's that's for much later in time, though. Uh, but to do archaeology well, you really need to work with a range of specialists. And if you find things that are that you're not as familiar with, you need to be able to contact them. Now, you and I uh, worked on a number of sites in the Russell Reservoir, and you were the first geoarchaeologist that I worked with. And I'm very fortunate I worked with you very early in my career because... Frankly, um, it isn't just about the artifacts. It's about the landscape they're on, the uh, matrix that they're embedded within. And unless you have someone like yourself who can explain how the landscape has changed through your geological and geomorphological studies, um, you, you don't get the same kind of information. You don't learn anywhere near as much. So... Um, I would say that if you're doing any kind of a large excavation, you absolutely have a geoarchaeologist involved. Um, and I've benefited from that on um, a number of subsequent projects, um, one of which was the uh, Shiloh uh, Indian Mounds excavations that I did about 15 years ago, where working with a geoarchaeologist, Sarah Sherwood, um, we documented the presence of colored, specially prepared fills. Uh, the mounds were put together carefully so that they wouldn't erode easily. Uh, there, there was, there were remarkable feats of both ceremony and engineering, uh, and we hadn't really thought about them from those perspectives before. So there, there are a lot of things that um, go into being a contemporary archaeologist, and those are just a, a couple of, of, of the examples. I'd like to uh, sort of 
milk your brain, if you don't mind, on how you look at um, your your approaches to complex sites, say, for example, mounds um, in a variety of different settings. There are certainly a lot of mounds in, in Georgia and, and extending uh, up into the Mississippi Valley, uh, upstream into the Midwest, and obviously a lot of locations in Alabama, Mississippi, and Louisiana as well. How do you, how do you approach those sites, David, as an archaeologist with an interdisciplinary perspective versus how you would look at, for example, coastal early human sites. Give us a perspective on that because you've worked on both types of situations. Well, um, I would say any site that we go out to now, the first thing we want to do is is look at the history of land use in the area to see uh, whether it was farmed, whether, say, if it was a coastal shell site, whether it had been mined for shell. We look at old aerial photographs. We use remote sensing techniques. Um, again, LIDAR um, imagery to look at subtle topographic fe- features that might not show up through just uh, traditional mapping. Um, you look at the landscape carefully first, and that, that then guides where you go next. You always have to ground truth, though that means dig holes and see what's there when you see signatures below the ground. You may have a pretty good idea what they are, but it never hurts to actually um, see what that signal is, is indicating. Um, then when you're going into a large site, uh, particularly if there are monuments, uh, monumental architecture, earthen mounds, shell mounds, you really should be working with specialists who understand how they were put together, how they were built. Um, and that involves geoarchaeologists with um, mounds of shell. You should involve specialists who study, for example, the, the seasons of at which the shell were procured. There are growth rings in them. Uh, you can look at paleo temperature variations in the shell, and you can determine what season it was harvested, things like that. So those are people you would involve in these projects. And uh, again, it's the monuments that are that have been found in the southeast are a lot more complex, a lot more uh, ceremonially sophisticated, uh, and as well uh, technically well put together. They, there's some pretty serious engineering thought that went into their construction. And what we're finding is is that uh, another major discovery of the last 25 years is we now know that earthen monuments were being built in the south five, six thousand years ago. We thought that they had only been built in the last roughly 3,000 years mm-hmm. uh, until fairly recently. So that's another new discovery. So, so the local people had a long time to think about uh, building monuments on the landscape. And at some times and places, they did some pretty remarkable things. Uh, many of the mounds in the south were probably not the green grass-colored monuments that we think of in paintings and in park brochures. They, many of them had... Um, colored clay surfaces, and, and uh, that makes sense um, because it's kind of hard to use a weed whacker or a lawnmower on a, on a mound, and a, a, a clay cap will protect uh, these, these um, from erosion. How do you look at, David, you've done a lot of work in, in later periods, uh, Euro-American contact, specifically in the Mississippian period. We used to always reference Cahokia as sort of being the 
center of the more advanced eastern woodlands uh, monumental architecture and um, the sacrificial and ceremonial areas. There are, of course, many, many complex sites in the southeast. Have we made significant advances in trying to link together the ceremonial centers and the development of more complex demographics and more complex societies in, uh, as, as, as archaeology moves ahead in the later prehistory? Um, yes, we have, and indeed, um, thinking uh, is continually. I mean, what's exciting is we're make, we are making a lot of exciting discoveries. Um, and one example is that um, at Cahokia a few years ago, it was documented that um, the black drink, um, a beverage made from holly, highly caffeinated, that southeastern Indians prepared and used. They were seen doing it at contact. That was the residue for that was found in beakers at the Cahokia site. Now the Cahokia site's in Illinois near St. Louis, it's well outside the range of that plant, which means that people from Cahokia um, were getting products from the Deep South. Uh, In terms of our understanding of how late prehistoric complex agricultural organizations, society and organizations spread, um, it's looking like... uh, that the central Mississippi Valley, and particularly the area um, at Cahokia and adjoining sites, was a very important to that story. Uh, Cahokia, uh, the, the primary mound, and there are 100 mounds within a fairly small area, the primary mound covers 14 acres and is 100 feet high, um, around 1050 to 1100, that was the center of um, what we would call a city or perhaps a near state or um, a proto-state or it could have even been a state, although it didn't have writing, but it just missed being uh, what any place in the world we would call a state-level society. Well, that's a very early um, complex society, and it's pretty clear that in other parts of the region, meaning the eastern North America, what was going on there, whether it was uh, cosmologically um, um, shaped in part by special ceremonies, um, people like Tim Pocketat, Tom Emerson talk about things like that. Um, Kahukia had an influence. Uh, we don't think they conquered any anyone, uh, but they definitely, people would go there. It was kind of like the Disneyland, um, although it would have been perhaps a better, would be the Vatican or Mecca. It was a place mm-hmm. people wanted to go to. And so they went back to where they came from, where people from Cahokia went there, and helped shape these complex societies. And, and this is a pattern in the East. Uh, there's a site called Poverty Point, about 3,000 or so years old, in northeast uh, Louisiana. The same thing happened. A huge monumental complex was built there. People from all over the southeast uh, went to and from there. And those centers shaped developments over the, the landscape. So um, our understanding of complex societies has changed. Interestingly enough, with remote sensing, we're finding that many sites that we thought dated later in time, like Moundville, Alabama, for example, remote sensing has shown that in, in the plaza there's there are communities below what we thought, you know, in former empty areas or plaza areas, um, that they have greater time depth um, earlier in the Mississippian than we had thought. So we're just beginning to untangle the relationships between all of these uh, sites and centers, but um, the picture is pretty fascinating. What about social organization? I mean, you've done a little bit of work on social organization. How how is our understanding of how these communities were organized internally advanced, and what was the nature of their connections uh, amongst themselves? 
Well, one of the things that um, a lot of scholars in the region have been exploring is um, the stability of these societies. How long did they last? Um, how complex did they grow? Uh, whether and why they fell apart? Um, there's a rise and fall uh, or cycling to the occurrence of many of these societies. Uh, rarely do you find a society continuing uh, for more than a century or two. They right. go through. So that's been explored by a number of people. We're really interested in what is going on at specific sites, discrete historical uh, trajectories, finding out what was going on in great detail at individual sites, but then looking at those pictures collectively across the region. We know that there was hereditary inequality, meaning there were chiefs whose positions passed on to their descendants, and if they were competent, they could hold on to them. If not, one of their relatives would take over. There, that form of social organization comes in sometime around 1,000, 1,500 or so years ago. And those sorts of, uh, they're reflected in, in burials. I know you had an earlier show um, talking about burials at Cahokia, and uh, I direct your listeners to it. Um, Emerson and Hargrove and others were, were, were talking about it. Um, it's fascinating what we're learning. Um, that's an example, again, of multidisciplinary work. Looking at the bone chemistry of the people that are found at these sites show that places like Cahokia uh, were formed in part through people coming together from, from a large number of areas. The artifacts show that, artifacts from different parts of the region. So we're finding that people moved a lot more than we thought they did and that that movement helped shape a lot of the developments we see. And we will be back with our very interesting and intriguing discussion on trends and developments in southeastern archaeology and in North American archaeology as a whole with my guest, Dr. David Anderson of the University of Tennessee, right after these words. We'll be right back. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. In the spirit of Have Couch, Will Travel, Dr. Carol Lieberman creates a haven of sanity in an increasingly insane world. Each day we are bombarded with news of events that have never crossed our wildest nightmares. Society is spiraling out of control and everyone is reeling from it. But now there's an answer. The best way to keep sane in this insane world is to tune in to Dr. Carol's Couch on Voice America. Dr. Carol, a certified media psychiatrist, will broadcast live from her Beverly Hills office every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Pacific time. Call or log in and get help with whatever is sending you reeling whenever you need a soothing voice to calm and advise you. That's Dr. Carol's Couch every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Pacific time here on America's Voice, voiceamerica.com. Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts. We'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. 
Are you a pet parent? If so, you'll want to stay up to date on the latest tech gadgets and advances for your canine or feline friend. With a ton of apps, websites, tech toys, and more, you'll want to be in the know when it comes to the real treasures and the duds. For that information, listen for Pet Lover Geek with host Lorian Clemens. We test and discuss what's hot and what's not on the pet front, so you'll be better informed. Tune in Saturdays at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Variety. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to Indiana Jones Myth Reality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. This is Joe Schuldenrein, and I'm talking with one of my most esteemed colleagues and a pioneer in the area of southeastern regional archaeology and major issues in North American archaeology generally, Dr. David Anderson of the University of Tennessee, uh, the Department of Anthropology. Uh, David, I, I just want to sort of step back, and I've talked to, obviously, a number of my colleagues and, and some of the folks that you obviously know very well, and we're, we, one of the things I think we need to do is to sort of step back, take stock, and look at where we have been, how far we've come, and where we're going. And this is the segment of where are we going and what does the profession look like, not just in terms of scientific advances, but also in terms of, of where the profession is with respect to the greater public. What do you see as the greater, let's start with the scientific elements of it, where are we going professionally and and what can we look to in terms of uh, major advances going forward in North America? Well, one of the things that we are trying to do um, as a result of 40 years of cultural resource management and accumulating literally uh, uh, millions and millions of artifacts, uh, information on hundreds of thousands of sites, there have been uh, literally hundreds of thousands of reports written. One of the major areas that uh, is being worked on is information management. How do we make use the most effective way of all the wonderful things we've learned, all the information we've collected? So there are organizations um, like TDAR, the Digital Archaeological Record, which is trying to uh, make reports accessible. I'm involved with a team of scholars with something called DINA, D-I-N-A-A, the Digital Index of North American Archaeology, where we're integrating data from literally um, hundreds of thousands of archaeological sites on the landscape. Uh, we have about 25 states right now cooperating with us, and we basically uh, we don't have sensitive information posted, but we're using that information to show where people were living on the landscape throughout prehistory. If you want to know where people were living 10,000 years ago as opposed to 5,000 years ago, that information is, we, we have the capability now to do those things. 
And that ties in with another area of where I think archaeology is going to play a major role in the future, and that is how climate change affects human settlement. Um, we have lived through periods of tremendous climate change in the past. The end of the last ice age, for example, sea levels came up 400 feet, global temperatures increased. We have uh, examples in the archaeological record of how people dealt with those circumstances. And we can use archaeological data to explore that and give us ideas about how to deal with trends in the future. Um, looking at past climate reconstructions, for example, um, with regard to rainfall, um, uh, coastline, sea level change, things like that, uh, you can learn from the past and it can help us guide to the, the future. There are also just, I think there are going to be a lot of tremendous discoveries continue to be made. We didn't know there was cave art um, here in, in uh, the southeast until just a few decades ago with Charlie Faulkner, Jan Schimmick, and others that have been exploring that. We now know that there's a rich artistic tradition uh, that we didn't know about. Archaeology, there are, there are wonderful discoveries being made. Um, Poverty Point turns out to be a lot more complex than we thought it was. Um, remote sensing work and excavations have shown that. A Spanish fort has been found in North Carolina at the Berry site uh, near Marion, North Carolina, just in the last few years. So we're learning tremendous things. So we're going to continue to learn things that are going to be relevant to the modern world, but we're going to have to work really hard to pull together the vast amounts of information that we've collected. Um, the profession itself is becoming a much more um, open profession. When um, you and I started, Joe, it tended to be dominated by um, uh, males, typically um, older, um, and now the field is much more open um, as many or more of the advanced degrees being awarded are going to uh, women. So the field is... Um, uh, different and better for that. We're exploring a range of topics that perhaps had not been thought of um, as a result of that. We're interested in um, gender relations in the past. We're interested in how the actions of ordinary folks, as well as you know the the, the privileged or the the wealthy, shaped the past. So that's how the field has been changing, as well. Um, I'd like to point out that there are lots of opportunities for people who want to work with archaeologists. Um, every southern state, and indeed most states in the country, has an archaeological society. Uh, and every major university has one or more archaeologists on the staff, on their staff. You can contact them and, and um, volunteer in their labs, volunteer on field projects, things like that. So, so there are lots of opportunities to work with archaeologists, and most of us really enjoy working with the public. Uh, with respect to the public, David, as you and I both know, the uh, pure funding for pure science has certainly been whittled down over the years, and it doesn't uh, look like it's going to jump back up anytime soon. And as a result of that, and probably towards everyone's benefit, there's been a greater emphasis on public outreach. What kinds of things are you seeing as being very beneficial and very stimulating as far as the public is concerned in terms of public outreach and education? Well, throughout my career, I've, I've uh, allowed, made provisions for volunteers to work on my projects. Um, just having, you know, just, just letting people know they're welcome to visit, they're welcome to work with us. Uh, you may have to sign a liability form, uh, but that's about it. We, we welcome 
public interest. The Paleo Indian uh, database of the Americas, the Pimba Project, 90% of the points in that were found by avocationals um, who then uh, contributed, compile, in many cases, compiled the information. The public also has a role to play um, in that if you think historic preservation, if you think archaeology, history, uh, historic landscapes, historic buildings, if you think that's important, then you should let um, your elected officials know, hey, I think this is important. We should support this. Um, it's what makes us, you know, part of part of uh, this country. Uh, this is our history. This is our heritage, and it's worth supporting. So, um, I encourage anyone to, you know, to be engaged uh, in that regard as well. Don't just work with archaeologists. Um, uh, support uh, archaeology and history when you can. What about careers in archaeology? Obviously, when you and I got into it, uh, CRM, cultural resource management, heritage management, preservation archaeology, those were, those were relatively new concepts, and they eventually ended up taking over the profession. What do you see as the venues for, for archaeology and for budding young archaeologists going forward? Well, what I tell my students uh, is that it is possible to succeed in archaeology. It always has been. And when you and I started, the, the same message was, yes, you can succeed in archaeology, but you better plan on working really hard, put That's in right. long hours. Um, yeah. And what I, so I tell people, um, be willing to work. Uh, learn how to write because it isn't, you know, learning how to dig well is important, but it's also important to write up what you find, to, to analyze it correctly and write it up. Um, work with the best people you can, visit lots of digs, work on different projects. Um, again, try to work on collaborative research projects with lots of different people. And then again, be willing to work hard. Um, it's not the sort of field that if you think you can work nine to five um, with three hour coffee breaks in between, you know you're not going to you're not going to with with three coffee breaks in between, you're not going to succeed. Um, you and I both know. I mean, we were working in the lab till all hours of the night, writing up the results of our field projects on the Savannah River. Uh, it takes that, but but I'm also very optimistic. If you want to have a life that you enjoy, if you love doing something, uh, and I've been very fortunate to have had a career um, in something that I love doing. So for me, it isn't work. If I work 80 hours a week or 100 hours a week, I don't view it as work. I view it as fun, a privilege, that sort of thing. And I try to convey that to my students um, when I'm lecturing that uh, – if you want to do, you know, you want to do something that you enjoy doing, and this is a field where you can just be realistic about uh, it isn't easy. Just put the put put your time in, and you can succeed. What about the next generation of students? Are you seeing the enthusiasm? Are you seeing any particular topics or themes that they're interested in? Are they looking towards relevance or? Uh, we had discussed how clear the message is of linking climate change to archaeology because we have the past, in a sense, to look at in terms of looking towards the future. Are you seeing a more, uh, say, pragmatic approach that the students are having? Are they interested in going into archaeology as, as a profession in your, uh, in your classes, in your experience? 
Well, what's interesting is, is I think a lot of the students are interested, but they tell me that their parents are not really <laughs> sure about this. <laughs> That's uh, right. Because the, the, their parents obviously are worried about, um, um, is my are my children going to be able to support themselves? And I will say to anybody that's listening that my parents told me the same thing too that um, they wondered about that but they supported me they saw that I loved it so they supported me Um, and I would say that there is a lot of interest in archaeology. It's really nice when you're teaching courses and the students are paying attention, they're engaged, they ask interesting questions. So the one thing about our field is it is fascinating to people. It is relevant to a lot of um, issues. It's teaching us who we are um, as a species. Um, So there is that interest. And... um, Every every year, every generation, there are new people coming on board. I'm very optimistic about the future, looking at the younger folks coming up. We just have some remarkable scholars in the southeast, and it, it really is a it's really good to see uh, the people that are out there coming along. Do you see public outreach being a, uh, playing a much greater role? And and how do we how, how do we anticipate or even look at the future of pure scientific research going forward? Well, public outreach is always important. Um, Basically, what we do is a decision that our country has made, has decided to support. So we need to involve the public, um, and that means we need to explain to them why what we do is important, why it's interesting. Uh, There are economic benefits um, as well as cultural um, benefits. Um, the remarkable sites that are being found and interpreted, for example, um, the landscape in terms of uh, historic preservation is changing all the time. We're learning new things about sites uh, or new parts of the landscape that we didn't pay a lot of attention to before. So those things are important, and I think as archaeologists, we really need to have as part of our um, job description mission, which most of us do anyway, which is to engage the public, to be willing to talk um, on shows like this, and I appreciate the fact that you do this, um, to give public talks, to work with state uh, and local archaeological and historical societies, uh, to train students well, and, and to try to encourage uh, teamwork, things like that, um, that is more than just uh, scholars, but involves uh, the interested public as well. Any final thoughts, Dave? We just have a couple of uh, minutes left. Any final thoughts on the future or uh, reflecting on your career? Well, in terms of my career, it was great to have met you at a young age. Um, <laughs> quite, ser- quite seriously, you're a really good scholar yourself, and, and um, um, I appreciate, as I said, learning from a really good geoarchaeologist at an early point in my career. If I hadn't met you, it might have been another 10 years or so before I did that. Now, uh, you know, another, I've enjoyed working with natural scientists. Uh, two of my projects, I've uh, made arrangements to have pollen cores taken um, in northeast Arkansas, a 10,000-year pollen sequence was developed at the Shiloh Mounds from a pond within the ceremonial center. Uh, we have another lengthy pollen record that was developed showing how the center was used. Uh, we can see land clearing when the Mississippi and the late prehistoric people came in, and then when the site was abandoned, the land goes back to forest. So. 
doing archaeology is a lot of fun, but it's even more fun and meaningful when you do it with good people, uh, palynologists, geoarchaeologists, a whole range of the sciences we work with. And so I appreciate having had the opportunity to have a life in this profession. And on that note, I want to thank my special guest, Dr. David Anderson of the University of Tennessee. And we will have another episode next week and look forward to your listenership. And uh, thank you very much and good evening. Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 